This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potables. I'm Emily. And I'm Kyle. We competed against each other on Jeopardy. Kyle ended up winning seven games. And we've been chatting about the show ever since. Each week we start with analysis of this week's Jeopardy episodes. Then we move on to a deep dive on a question or category in one of those episodes. And we wrap it up with a quiz. But this week is a little different. Mm -hmm. As I'm sure you know, as avid Jeopardy watchers. Uh, It started with, on Monday, a replay of Ken Jennings' first ever appearance on Jeopardy. And then continued with the first four games. Matches? Games? How do they describe it? uh, Well, it was... Two two games per match or two matches per game? Oh, goodness. I think they said two games per match, but I could be mistaken. Yeah, well, whatever the terminology is. They went with the first four of them from the uh, Greatest of All Time tournament, mm-hmm. which we mentioned. So this episode is probably going to be a little bit shorter. We uh, we had a plan. That plan uh, did not necessarily come to fruition. So this is uh, our backup. <laughs> we're going to talk <laughs> about the uh, we're going to talk about the the Ken Jennings episode from way back when, June second, two thousand four. And then we're just going to go straight into our deep dive and quiz. So it'll be a little bit shorter. Maybe you appreciate that, maybe you don't, but that's how it's going to be. That's right. So the episode we are recapping today is uh, Ken Jennings Game 1, Wednesday, June 2, 2004, uh, which aired on Monday. But, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> Time is meaningless. <laughs> that's, that's a little deeper than I meant to go. But yes, time is meaningless. We are in the dot on the eye of the Jeremy Barramy. That's right. Yeah. So uh, our contestants for that game were Julia Lazarus, a fundraiser from New York, New York. Ken Jennings, a software engineer from Salt Lake City, Utah. And Jerry Harvey, a freelance educator originally from California, Missouri, whose two-day cash winnings total $70,002. And we got the Jeopardy! categories, Biography Subtitles, Let's Clean Up, Pardon Me, Quotable Recent Movies, uh, that's recent as of 2004, Playtime, and Episodes with Epi, E-P-I, in quotation marks. Mm-hmm. This is probably just showing my own ignorance, but I wonder what a freelance educator is. Hmm. Yeah. Is it a tutor? Is that a fancy I, way of saying tutor? I guess. Or or is it some? Is it like outside of the the realm of necessarily like school education, and maybe it's something along the lines of like corporate education or something? Oh, like that. that could be. Yeah. yeah, maybe. Hmm. Yeah. All right, whatever. Um, I was actually blown away by how close this game was throughout. Like, how close we were to Ken Jennings not happening. Yeah, not being the Ken Jennings that we know. Yeah, yeah, it, it came down to final, and it, it was pretty close. Um, yeah. Julia did a good job of staying in it. Yeah, she really did. I, um... I haven't. I don't think I've seen her be active in the in the Jeopardy community. 
as far as I recall. Um, mm-hmm. But like, wow, what an interesting story that is for her to have, you know, yeah. as her memory of being on Jeopardy. I hope she feels great about it, you know? Like, yeah, sure. It's tough to lose, but you really, uh, you, you, you gave it to one of the best. Well, really, I guess the greatest. So, yeah, uh, there, there was some, it was kind of trippy to watch, like be taken back. I always notice at the beginning of a season when things have changed, you know, they change the lighting or the podiums or the, the like game board setup or whatever, but it quickly becomes very normal Mm -hmm. for me. And to be like thrown back into that, it's like, oh my gosh. I had forgotten that that was how the set looked. And, you know, every episode that I watched of Ken Jennings looked like that. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I was I was struck by how much they've changed the set. Um, and uh, my husband said, oh, it looks very modern, by which I think he means that, like, kind of, like the like the 90s like geometric like i'm thinking about like the folders that i had in elementary school and they would have like triangles and circles everywhere um and mm-hmm. that and that jeopardy now has brought their set back to something that looks more like it's kind of like inspired by like a classic car it's got that kind of look to it you know sure um, yeah so yeah the, the podiums were all like you know sort of harsh angly and mm-hmm. yeah really different set my kids were very thrown off by it too, and so was I. Yeah. So that was that was wild. I thought. Yeah. yeah. I agree with you on that one. The, the quotable recent movies category. It's like those aren't recent now. Yeah. <laughs> but they um, were. I remember when these were recent. I'm not that yeah. old. Uh huh. But this was, you know, 15 years ago, 16 years ago, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. I was surprised that. Most of them were still pretty gettable, um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because some movies, you know, really kind of come and go, and these I feel like have stayed mo- many of them kind of in our in our pop culture lexicon. Um, True. Yeah, we had at the two hundred dollar level from two thousand two, nice Greek girls who don't find a husband work in the family restaurant. That is my big fat Greek wedding. I still quote that one. Not that particular quote, but I quote that all the time. I believe you have quoted it to me. I think I have, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, at the 400, we had um, from 2003, I shall take you to the Black Pearl and your Bonnie Lass. Um, that's Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. That one's stayed reasonably popular. Um, the $600 level from 2001. How did this movie come out in 2001? It was like yesterday. Keep an eye on the staircases. They like to change. That's from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Yeah. Um, um, you know, Emma Watson and Daniel Radcliffe and Rupert Grint, they're like my age. Yeah. <laughs> it's weird to watch those movies and think of them as little kids and then be like, oh, wait. Mm-hmm. They, they're like, we could literally be, you know, classmates or whatever. Yeah. We had Bruce Almighty at the $800 level, that one, mm-hmm. and um, Signs at the $1,000 level. That was a trickier one, I thought. Um, the quote there was, there's a monster outside my room. Can I have a glass of water? Yeah, but of course. The big secret is the aliens can't handle water. Yep. Spoiler alert. Probably should have said that before. <laughs> I mean, it's a movie from 18 years ago. It's That's fine, I yeah. think. There is a statute of limitations Mm-hmm. We should mention at this point that Rosebud is a sled. What? <laughs> um, 
Yeah, uh, the Johnson first pick. Got Darth Vader. <laughs> All right, sorry. Go you ahead. wouldn't. You wouldn't dare. Yeah, the first pick, as has already been pointed out by a number of people, just you know, cosmically on point. The two hundred dollar clue in the episodes category: a fast spreading outbreak of a disease, which is an epidemic. How could they know? How could ooh. <laughs> You get the first Daily Double in the Biography Subtitles category at the $800 level. Jerry finds it and makes it a true Daily Double with $1,800 to Ken's $2,600. Julia has zero at that point. He gets the clue. An entrepreneur. Bargain billionaire. He guesses who is Woolworth. Um, The correct response there is Sam Walton of Walmart. So at that point, Ken is the only one with money. Mm-hmm. He got that taste for blood. And that was it. Yeah. They cleaned this board up pretty well. I mean, you know, they. I think there was one or two triple stumpers. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Ken obviously was great, but Jerry got a good number and so did Julia. And Jerry missed that daily double. And then the only other missed clue was at the $800 level of playtime. Um, a Parcheesi player begins with four pieces and can move a maximum of this many of them on one roll of the dice. Um, the correct answer there is two. Nobody hazarded a guess. How could they not know the royal game of India? I'm not sure I've ever played Parcheesi. Parcheesi is the same as... Or almost the same as... Do not. Sorry? Do right? not say it? it is the same as sorry. Is it? Yeah, I, yeah, it totally is. Yeah, it absolutely okay, is. Okay, all right. So at the uh, end of the Jeopardy round, Jerry is at 1,800. Julia is at 4,800, which is a good score after uh, single Jeopardy. And Ken is up at 8,000. Mm-hmm. And we get the double Jeopardy categories, H names with H in quotation marks. Actresses and playwrights. Vocabulary, senatorial successors, country time, and lemonade. And again, we have a really competitive round here. There were, uh, there. I think there's only one triple stumper in this round. Mm-hmm. I mean, Ken at this point is proven as the greatest, greatest of all time. But like, they really gave him a run for his money on that very first game. Yeah. Jerry ended up struggling quite a bit, um, but Julia was right in there the whole time. Yeah. The senatorial successors category is not my would not be my forte if we were doing it for 2020 anyhow, but answering clues that were double jeopardy level in 2004 with 16 years of history gone by um, did not work well for me at all. Nope. I got two of them. Mm-hmm. Did I get two? I think I, I may have only gotten one, although a $2,000 clue. Um, it was 1998, replaces New York's Alphonse D'Amato. Um, and I thought that can't be Chuck Schumer, can it? And I did not shout out my guess from my couch. Um, but in fact, it was Chuck Schumer. Go, Julia got that one. Mm-hmm. Which makes sense because she's a New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, So the second Daily Double came pretty early in the round. Uh, They started in the vocabulary 
category. And actually, for most of this round, they went top to bottom. There was a little bit of back and forth movement later, but uh, they 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 stuck to the categories pretty pretty strongly. So they started at the top vocabulary. Uh, the second daily double came at the sixteen hundred dollar level in that category. So it was pick number four. Ken found this one. Uh, and he wagered 2,000. He was up at 10,000 at that point. Uh, Julia was at 5,200, and Jerry was at 600. He gets the clue. Prefab metal sheets used to print newspapers gave us this term for standard wording, as in contracts. And he gets that. It, it is boilerplate. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that was where that term came from. I did not know that either. Makes sense. Just a few clues later, Julia finds the third Daily Double as the eighth pick at the $1,200 level of actresses and playwrights. Uh, she wages 5000 for 6000 Um Ken is at 14000 at that point, so even if she wagers everything, she can't catch him in this wager. Jerry has 1000 She gets the clue. Chapter one of her life with Neil Simon began in 1973 when she was cast in his play, The Good Doctor, and she correctly identifies Marsha Mason. Yeah, so she she made a big wager and got back into the game. Smart play. Yeah. Apparently in 2004, they used lemon juice in their guacamole. Do you not use lemon juice? We use lime. Always lime. Only lime. I don't know if that's something I'm being weird about. I do half and half. Oh, okay. I do equal parts lemon, equal parts lime. Juice. All right, so maybe that's not a 2004 versus 2020 thing. Maybe that's a, a personal preference thing. Yeah, I mean, as long as you got avocado, yeah, you can kind of throw whatever else you want and call it guacamole, right? Mm-hmm. As we learned from Anarchy, guacamole means avocado sauce. That's right. Yeah. No, I, I, do, uh, I don't do measurements. I just throw in, throw the ingredients in. Um, yeah. So I can't say how much I use, but I, I do equal parts. Lemon and lime juice, salt, cilantro, uh, finely diced onion, and some kind of pepper, whether it's bell pepper or jalapeno or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's it. Yeah. We do avocado, salt, a little red onion, lime juice, cilantro. We don't usually do pepper because the kids won't tolerate it, although I miss it. Hmm. That is a bummer. Um, I thought there was a fun neg bait in the country time category um, mm-hmm. at the $1,600 level. I can't remember how to say this person's name. A child prodigy violinist, Yehudi Menuhin, was born in this country. That is clearly a Jewish name, and so Ken rang in and guessed what is Israel. The correct response there is the United States. Um, Which Jerry uh, got. Which Jerry got, yes. Often when Jeopardy is asking for a country, nobody like really thinks it could possibly be the United States. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, that I've seen that come up and be like kind of tricky for people um, uh, numerous times. Yeah. Especially at the higher dollar levels, it's like, why would you put the United States up there? Ooh, that's too yeah. easy. Mm-hmm. The clue below that, we... I feel like Ethiopia comes up a lot on Jeopardy, or it has recently. Uh, the $2,000 clue, we get to add more to the different names that we need to know of it. Uh, what was long ago called Kush, part of Nubia, is considered to be this African country today. 
and that is also Ethiopia. So we have Kush, mm-hmm. Nubia, Abyssinia. Yeah. Yeah, all of that is Ethiopia. Yep. So at the end of the double jeopardy round, Ken is leading with 20,000. Julia is only 1,400 behind with 18,600. Uh, Jerry has 7,400, and we get the category the 2000 Olympics. The clue is, she's the first female track and field athlete to win medals in five different events at a single Olympics. So Jerry has wagered just a dollar. Maybe he thought both Julia and Ken were going to bet big. Yeah. I mean, he couldn't catch Julia's score, even if he bet at all. Yeah. I'm not sure why a dollar versus sitting pat, but I think a small wager makes sense. Um, Since he can't double up and catch Julia, he can reasonably expect Ken at least to bet very big um, to cover Julia's all-in, so he can hope that Ken's going to drop below him. He has guessed, he has uh, responded, who is Marion Jones? Um, And that is correct. Uh, Julia wagered 3,799. So she is looking to stay above Jerry's all-in. She's written, who is Gail? Alex asked her about that, and she said, I don't know, someone named Gail. That's incorrect, so she drops down. Um, Ken has made a cover bet with 17,201. He wrote, who is Jones? Um, and he has described in subsequent interviews that Alex had to wait for a ruling from the judges. Um, Ken apparently is like a big Olympics fan, although he it happens that he didn't follow the 2000 Olympics as closely. Um, but he knew that it was Marion Jones, but because on Jeopardy, you normally it's normally good strategy to respond with just a last name. He mm-hmm. put down Jones thinking, of course, Marion Jones Right. But it but is Jones a very is, common last name. It's such a common last name that it's a common guess if you don't know what the correct answer is. Um, right. Yeah, it's like a Smith or a Johnson. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so Alex had to wait for a, a ruling from the judges about whether simply Jones was sufficient in this case. Um, usually in Jeopardy rules, that's uh, that a last name alone is sufficient unless there is someone else he would be differentiating from with the same last name. Yeah. Um, uh, the judges did accept Jones, um, so Ken wins his first game, and the rest is history. Yeah, we'll see how far he goes. I don't know. It was a close one. Yeah. Close one. I don't. I don't see him going that far. I I wouldn't mind them re-airing more of his run during. Uh, during the hiatus and whatever other break we may have, uh, depending on whether they're able to tape. Yeah. Looking at his stats, like, I mean, he was in nearly 50% of the time first on the buzzer, which that's that's the, to me, like, aside from having the knowledge to back it up, that's the, the key ingredient to success on Jeopardy mm-hmm. is that buzzer speed. Like, I, th- I think yeah. my percentage at the end of the run was only like 37 percent which really is not particularly dominant and still that was good enough you know yeah yeah seeing that 47 percent i think i mean i think james holzhauer was above 50 percent uh mm-hmm. first in which i mean that's yeah yeah all right 
Wow, that was a that was a long and intense recapping week there. Yeah, um, I mean we 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 gave it a little more depth knowing that we only had one show to recap. Sure. Um, oh yeah. yeah. Um, and if you're interested in hearing the recap of the greatest of all time, <laughs> the greatest of all time tournament, uh, that has already been done, and it's up on our Patreon. That's right. You can find us on Patreon.com/slash Potent Potables. We have membership levels there from $3 on up, uh, and all of those levels get access to our bonus content, including our greatest of all time recaps, um, and our outtakes reel. That's right. Yeah, we'll see what else we get on there eventually. Yes. You know, I keep telling myself I should have time to get stuff up there now that, you know, I'm not, I don't, I'm not like physically going to work, but man, my days seem so much busier Mm-hmm. And I get so much less done right now. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you you don't find it, like, relaxing and easy breezy to, li- to live in, in the midst of a pandemic? Not with small kids. Yeah, nobody does. Um, yeah, no. I, uh... <laughs> the pandemic Plus... pandemic is secondary to that. <laughs> it's, just like, yeah. it's just being home with the kids all the time. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Plus, having everyone in the house, like, everything is breaking all the time. Everything needs to be cleaned all the time. Cleaning is um, a big thing, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, uh, I think that I had an idea that I would have lots of time for extra projects during this, and mm-hmm. nope. Yeah. That is incorrect. Yep. All right, right. anyway, moving on. Uh, let's see, you have a deep dive. I assume it's from this episode. Okay, it is not from this episode. Um, so oh, okay. in our in our in our goat recaps, we did recaps only. We did not do any deep dive related to any of that content. Gotcha. So it is from one of the greatest of all time episodes that aired this week. Okay, in that case, um, I'm not going to have a guess at all. <laughs> all right, we we didn't do deep dives those weeks um, because regular Jeopardy episodes were airing. Also, um, we did deep dives on jeopardy episodes that were that were like the the regular sort of the the regular jeopardy and then the goat content was sort of separate and on top of that so we didn't do deep dives in those episodes um but i thought this might be a nice time to come back to those episodes and look at some of the um the triple stumpers and miss daily doubles from those episodes um poor brad pulled all the hardest daily doubles, I think, uh, oh, yeah. of the tournament. He just things would not go his way, um, which, you know, I felt for him. But I don't know. He's beat Ken enough times. It was nice to see Ken have a turn at that. Um, That's true, in any yeah. case, oh, they they did call it it's two games per match. Um, so it was the first match, but the second game. Uh, so this would be. Uh, the one that aired Wednesday of this week, in Double Jeopardy. Um, in Double Jeopardy, Brad picked Daily Double number two as his very first pick and missed it. Um, and then a few clues later, he pulled Daily Double three and missed that one as well. It was like this heartbreaking sequence. And I thought I would go for that missed Daily Double three. It was in the Philosopher's category at the $2,000 level. Hmm. This double first name philosopher... Born in 1842, said that the value of a concept is in its practical consequences. Do you remember who this is, Kyle? Uh, I mean, 
I'm looking at it, so yes. But no, I did not remember. I would not have remembered it off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, so this is William James. So I um, I knew the name William James, but not really much of anything about him. I knew there was some kind of association with psychology, but that didn't especially fit with uh, with that clue that, that I remembered. Um, and I thought this might be an interesting time to uh to learn a little bit about william james Mm -hmm. um so william james um lived from 1842 to 1910 he was a philosopher psychologist educator he was a prolific writer and kind of a multidisciplinary public intellectual kind of figure ended up very associated with harvard university um but also like lectured all over the world Hmm. Um, He's known as the father of American psychology, um, and he's especially known um, for his philosophical work in pragmatism. So he was born in New York City in 1842 to a wealthy and influential family. Uh, He was the first child of Henry James Sr. and Mary James. Um, Henry James Sr. was an influential Swedenborgian theologian. He'd broken with his Presbyterian parents to um, to join the Swedenborgian branch of Christianity. He was, uh, the family was well connected with writers, philosophers, public intellectuals. Um, they were friends with Thoreau and Emerson, for example. They had inherited wealth that sort of kept them afloat as they, um, you know, pursued various, various things and traveled frequently throughout Europe. William James was the oldest of five siblings. His brother, Henry James Jr., uh, was a noted novelist whose name you've probably heard before. Um, Two other brothers named Garth and Robertson. And then his sister, Alice, grew up to be famous as a diarist. They moved often. I think I I mentioned, I alluded to that a second ago. Um, Henry James Sr. was like always on kind of like a quest for knowledge, for spiritual fulfillment. They moved to Germany during William James's childhood and later England, and then they were back in New York City for some years, and then more travel through England and France in his teen years. Um, They came back to the States and were in Newport, Rhode Island for a year, and then Switzerland, and then back to the States, um, always kind of trying to find something more, something different. Uh, Through all of that, there was a lot of attention to the education of their children, but that education ended up being somewhat disjointed. I read this as the story of a family with like very high standards and some kind of weird philosophical viewpoints. And they were always sort of trying to find um, somewhere that would fit all of those standards and um, expectations that they had and never quite managing it. So various tutors, various schools. Um, There was one period of William James's life where he was enrolled in a different private school in New York for each year for three consecutive years because they kept moving him from place to place to place because they would have like uh, differences of opinion with the with the uh, with the uh, heads of the schools. Henry James Sr. wrote at one point in a letter to a friend, I have grown so discouraged about the education of my children here, uh, here being in America and dread so those inevitable habits of extravagance and insubordination, which appear to be the characteristics of American youth, 
that I have come to the conclusion to retrace my steps to Europe and keep them there a few years longer. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> America is too extravagant, too rebellious. This is this is like the 1850s, by the way. Um, and uh, the only proper place to educate a child is Europe, but they, they also couldn't manage it there. So very controlling, very concerned about the education of the children, but also like very protective about various influences of society. William James wanted to be a painter, and his family was not into that. His father steered him toward natural sciences or philosophy as more appropriate uh, pursuits. Hmm. In 1861, he's 19 years old. He enters the Lawrence Scientific School at Harvard University to study chemistry. Um, the Civil War is beginning at that point. Two of his brothers enlist, but William James and Henry James um, both have health issues that uh, that they feel that they that prevent them from enlisting. William James in particular seems to have been in general a pretty sickly young man, and there would be spells, extended spells of illness throughout his life. Later, he switched his studies to medicine. Um, his family's inherited wealth was kind of dwindling and it started to become clear to him that he was going to need a profession that would let him earn a living. Um, it wasn't clear if chemistry was going to be that, uh, but if he studied medicine, he thought, you know, he could practice as a doctor. So changed his course a little bit. Uh, during his college years, he had an opportunity to travel and do research with uh, the scientist Louis Agassiz um, and took a year off of his college studies to travel in South America, travel along the Amazon collecting specimens. He was not that into medicine, which he'd switched to. He was hoping that natural history would be more inspiring or fulfilling to him, uh, but he hated that also. Uh, during the course of this, the James family moves to Cambridge as William James is finishing his studies. He's been, I believe he's been living there at Harvard, but his family moves to that area and, and they're sort of together as a family again. In 1867 and 1868, he goes to Europe to study and to seek treatment for various physical ailments that he's experiencing. Um, he, throughout his life, dealt with back pain, um, weak vision, digestive troubles, um, and pretty serious depression, including um, suicidal thoughts. And I think thought of that as part of, you know, sort of part of the whole picture of his of his physical health and well-being. And so that was kind of listed in along with all of those other illnesses as reasons that he would go to Europe or, you know, uh, take take time away from his study or his work. In 1869, he's back at Cambridge. He receives his M.D., but immediately following that, he has another period of ill health where he stays with his family for about three years and uh, just convalesces through this crisis. It was uh, a period of both ill health and like psychological and spiritual anguish. And that crisis would motivate much of his thinking and writing. For the initial portion, he was convinced that depression and like mental agony were his biological destiny. Um, he saw that as being very similar to his father. At some point during this time, he reads an essay by um, a philosopher named Renouvier, an essay about free will, which convinces him that he can, to some degree, alter his fate through the force of his own will. And he wrote about that time, my first act of free will shall be to believe in free will. 
and to you know kind of try to use his free will to um, to the best of his ability, sort of seek wellness. It helps be really well connected. Um, his former teacher Charles Eliot, who was at that point the president of Harvard, offered him a position teaching at Harvard as he came out of this period of ill health. Um, he took a position teaching physiology and began teaching in 1872. During that time, he forms a discussion group, which he calls the Metaphysical Club, um, with philosophers Charles Pierce and Chauncey Wright, uh, both young men early in their careers at that time, and uh, jurist Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. Ooh. Yeah, so... He's continued, I mean, he's, he had really the benefit of uh, a lot of connections with some of the kind of really leading thinkers of the time, um, you know, and came to, came to be one himself. Um, he was a popular and successful instructor, um, teaching physiology and psychology. Um, psychology at that time was not really its own field. There were parts of it that were kind of considered part of medicine or natural history and other parts that were more under philosophy. There was no psychology department. Over the course of his career, some of his students included Theodore Roosevelt, um, W.E.B. Du Bois, Gertrude Stein, Elaine Locke, um, a number of other sort of major names in philosophy, but those were the ones that stood out to me as um, kind of uh, more, more generally familiar um, to, to, uh, like to a lay audience. He had a relapse of depression in 1873 and 1874, um, traveled in Europe with his brother Henry during that, and then returned to teaching. And in 1875, he established the first laboratory of experimental psychology. I'm not sure if this was the first, like, at Harvard or in the U.S. or in the world. Like, I, I need to look that up. But but he was he was very, very early in terms of experimental psychology. Over time, his thinking started to um, move to like align more with the philosophy department, the kinds of questions he was asking and research he was interested in, rather than natural history where he had started. Um, he begins publishing in philosophy and philosophical journals. Um, he's arguing against Hegel and other sort of similar philosophers and aligning with John Stuart Mill. A lot of stuff about epistemology and um, I've read some philosophy, but I'm still kind of mystified by all of these guys, <laughs> um, truth be told. Talking about his teaching psychology, this is from a biography. biographer. There were no professors of psychology in American universities before William James began teaching the subject in 1875. The only forms of psychology then taught in the United States were phrenology. Um, that's the, the head bump thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. The most uh, scientific science. <laughs> right. And Scottish mental philosophy, an offshoot of associationism used chiefly as a defense of revealed religion. William James himself had never taken a course in the new psychology because none was available. As he once jested, the first lecture in psychology that I ever heard was the first I ever gave. Hmm. So he's really kind of a pioneer and kind of, um, you know, building the plane as he flies it, so to speak. Uh, in 1878, he starts to undertake writing a text on psychology. It was, I think it was uh, under contract to be done like within like a year or two years. Um, it ended up taking him like 12 years. That same year, he married Alice Howe Gibbons. He began teaching 
philosophy and was made an assistant professor in 1880 and a full professor five years after that. Um, And over the 10 years after his marriage, uh, he and Alice had five children, although their third son died at only a year old. In 1882, his mother died, his father died in the same year, um, and the death of his father fell during a sabbatical in Europe, um, so he didn't have the opportunity to be home and with his family for that. His teaching and writing continue over the following years, um, but finally in 1890, he publishes this huge tome, um, Principles of Psychology. Um, It's about 1,200 pages, I believe, uh, divided between two volumes. The genre is like, it's psychology, but like, there is no psychological writing at that point. He's kind of making mm-hmm. it up as he goes along. So it's it's kind of a blend of psychology and philosophy and autobiography. There's some self-help kinds of things in there. Um, the discipline was still really being defined. And he took a very introspective approach to all of his intellectual pursuits, trying to draw on his own experience and use that as a basis for his philosophical and psychological questions. It had a very literary tone. Um, there were critics who would quip that um, that William James was a novelist who wrote about psychology and uh, Henry James was a psychologist who wrote novels. So uh, lofty language. It was too lengthy to be really usable in an educational setting. And so he later, um, a couple of years later, condensed it into a shorter book called Psychology, the Briefer Course. The joke at the time was the 1200 book, 1200 page book was James book of psychology. And the briefer course was, uh, was called Jimmy. (laughs) That's Um, a really good joke. (laughs) (laughs) They were funny in the 1890s. Um, He had an interest in the paranormal. He was known to attend seances. That was a, a little, little shocking, a little controversial. Although looking at all of these deaths that he had faced in such a short period of time, I'm, I'm not too surprised that that was of interest to him. Yeah. As a psychologist, he had a great interest in the concept of the self and his approach. He thought of the self as, as a duplex consisting of the I and the me. So the I is the self as the knower and me is the self that is known. Um, And then he further divided the me into three aspects, the physical, the social, and the spiritual. It's likely that he also coined the term self-esteem. His sister Alice died in 1892, um, so that was an influential event in his life. Um, In 1892, he also starts to pivot toward education, um, although there's some question of whether this was in part motivated by finances. Uh, He gave a series of talks on education and educational psychology to teachers in Cambridge and gave numerous like lectures and talks to groups of teachers and ended up turning those talks into a very commercially successful book. As the 1890s and early 20th century went on, he became more active in various social and political causes. He was very concerned about like U.S. imperialism. He got really into the work of Freud and uh, went to Clark University in my hometown of Worcester, Massachusetts, 
1894 to get to hear Freud give his only lecture in the United States. Wow. Yeah. In 1896, he published um, a book called The Will to Believe and other essays in popular philosophy starting to move towards uh, religion, which is another area that he's well remembered um, for his work on. That work originates the term multiverse, although he coined that word to mean something very different from how it would later come to be used. Um, and if I've understood him correctly and like summing up William James is really difficult because he wrote like thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages. And he often was, I think, sort of working out what he thought as he wrote. But my understanding of his use of multiverse in that context is that um, because reality is always filtered through our perception, there's not kind of a single universe, but uh, the multiverse for him was that the universe as filtered through um, the perception of each observer. So there's sort of a, a multiplicity of universes in that way. In 1898, he gives a lecture titled Philosophical Conceptions and Practical Results. Um, that lecture is in Berkeley, California, and it, it is where he starts to put together pragmatism as, a as his philosophical approach. Shortly after that, he, he published that, uh, that book of uh, talks to teachers, which I mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, he took another sabbatical in 1899 to 1901. He's in ill health again. Um, and then in 1901 to 1902, he is in Edinburgh giving Gifford lectures on man's religious constitution. And those lectures become the basis for his work, The Varieties of Religious Experience, which I think is maybe his best remembered single work at this point. Um, although that could be skewed because I studied religion. But the, the Varieties of Religious Experience is published in 1902. William James was very early in exploring the psychology of religion with kind of uh, a broad view across religious traditions. Um, at that time, there was all of this, you know, theological kinds of arguing, there was church history, but very few people were really thinking about religious experience from a psychological point of view. In these lectures, he um, focused for a bit on mysticism. That was a of particular interest to him, um, uh, mysticism in, in various faiths. He uh, made a differentiation between what he thought of as healthy religion and what he thought of as sick-souled religion, with healthy religion for him being characterized by contentment and sick-souled religion being kind of fixated on the evils and wrongs of the world. He ended up concluding that religion is overall beneficial. And at that time, he's kind of putting together his his uh, pragmatism. But this, this approach is very sort of consistent with this viewpoint that he's putting together, um, which is that because religion is beneficial, that it sort of works as like a support to human life, that that somehow makes it true or supports its claims to be true. In 1903, he was awarded Doctor of Laws degree from Harvard University. In 1906, he served briefly as an acting professor at Stanford University. Um, and so he was in San Francisco for the Great Earthquake of 1906, um, 
although uh, very fortunate in that they uh, he and his wife had some pottery break and that was pretty much it. Uh, in 1906, he is back in Boston giving the Lowell Lectures, which become the basis for his book Pragmatism, which was published in 1907. And again, summing up William James is difficult. But if I've understood what I've read correctly, the idea of pragmatism is that the value of truth is dependent on its usefulness to the person who holds it as true. And then this is a quote from him. Truths emerge from facts, but they dip forward into facts again and add to them. Which facts again create or reveal new truth, the word is indifferent, and so on indefinitely. The facts themselves, meanwhile, are not true. They simply are. Truth is the function of the beliefs that start and terminate among them. So he used this example in, in discussing pragmatism. A live squirrel supposed to be clinging on one side of a tree trunk, while over against the tree's opposite side, a human being was imagined to stand. This human witness tries to get sight of the squirrel by moving rapidly around the tree, but no matter how fast he goes, the squirrel moves as fast in the opposite direction and always keeps the tree between himself and the man. The resultant metaphysical problem now is this. Does the man go round the squirrel or not? I feel okay. like for the, the, the squirrel has to be moving in the same direction. I That's what, depends I, on what yeah. I had that same thought. but Right? <laughs> and so um, William James's take on this question is to make a distinction um, between the practical meanings of the word round. Does this mean, does the man go round the squirrel in the sense that he occupies the space northeast, south, and west of the squirrel? Or does it mean go around the squirrel in the sense that he faces the squirrel's belly back and both sides? And depending on what the debaters mean by going around, then the answer should be clear. And so from this example, William James derives the pragmatic method idea that um, to settle metaphysical disputes, one must make a distinction about practical consequences, and then the answer should be clear. And if not, then the dispute is idle. And so he sort of, um, pragmatism in part is about rejecting kind of philosophical problems where you cannot define any practical implications. If you can find practical implications, then you should be able to more and more tightly define your terms until you can, you know, sort of find an answer to your uh, to your conundrum. And if you can't, then why are you doing this? Um, so, which, uh, yeah, um, I'm not sure if I've understood pragmatism correctly, but I I felt like I started to get. Sure. The sense of it. I, I feel like why are you doing this is often where I land when I when I think about philosophy for too long. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. So Pragmatism is published in 1907. Um, that is also the year that he teaches his final class at Harvard to an overflowing lecture hall. In 1909, he gives um, some lectures at Oxford and publishes the work A Pluralistic Universe. In that same year, he uh, writes uh, the work The Meaning of Truth um, to further expand on his work in pragmatism. Also that year, I believe it was, he announced that he had communicated with the spirit of deceased parapsychologist Richard Hodgson, hmm. and he published a 100-page account of that 
communication, including transcripts of their conversations. His health had never been good. Um, He started to experience heart troubles. And uh, in 1910, he died at the age of 68. So that's William James. He lived a life that was characterized by multidisciplinary academic pursuits as a public intellectual while simultaneously facing ongoing physical and mental health struggles. Hmm. And I was struck by the realization that um, the ideas that he's really remembered for were taking shape over the course of his life, but were ended up being summarized in the works that he wrote really in like the last five to 10 years of his life. And he's, you know, he's remembered for his work in religion. He's remembered for his work in psychology. He's remembered as a philosopher. And that's William James. Nice. Yeah. So. (laughs) My awareness of him has increased uh, in an indefined mathematical function because it went from zero to a whole lot more. (laughs) Nice. Are you ready for a quiz? I am ready for a quiz. All right. So, uh, as I mentioned, William James had two siblings who were also famous, um, Henry James and Alice James. Um, And so this is a quiz around Henry, Alice, William, James. Okay. All right. So, question one. Uh, We have talked before, albeit briefly, about the Isle of Sodor and its beloved inhabitant, Thomas the Tank Engine. Thomas is blue, of course. What color is James? Ah, okay. Percy is green. That's true. Gordon is also green? Gordon, is that the name? The big one. Mm -hmm. I think Gordon's blue. Gordon is blue, but he's big. He's much bigger Mm -hmm. than Thomas. Okay, he's blue. Then I think James is red. I'm going to go with red. James is red. You are correct. That is 10 points. All right. Question two. Uh, Rapper William Adams, uh, whose stage name is Will I Am, is a member of the Black Eyed Peas. For three three points each, name as many (laughs) other current or former members of the Black Eyed Peas as you can. Okay. Fergie. Mm -hmm. And... I am going to just start listing names. Jones, Smith, Johnson, Brown. <laughs> I have no idea. All right. Um, Big Boy, get... Andre 3000. Uh, that's out. All right. Um, so you get you get three points. Um, <laughs> uh, so Fergie is a former member. Current members include Apple D. App, Taboo, and J. Ray Soul. And other former members are Kim Hill and Dante Santiago. You could have completely made those up, and I would have no idea. <laughs> um, I think that J. Ray rang a bell for me when I was looking this up, but yeah, the, the only one I knew was Fergie. All right, uh, so you're at 13 points. Question three. So there are various nicknames for the name Henry. Um, there's Harry, of course, but there's another nickname for Henry, which was used by at least two, I think two, famous baseball players. Hmm. One played for the Detroit Tigers much of his career and was noted for, among other things, his refusal to play during Yom Kippur. Another baseball player who uses the same nickname for Henry 
held the Major League Baseball record for career home runs for 33 years. Yeah. Name both. Well, I know Hank Aaron right off the bat. Um, Hank, oh, what is his name? Oh, what is his last name? I'm going to be very angry when I don't pull it and you say the name and I, of course, know it. Uh, I do not remember. I want to say Hank Williams, even though I'm pretty sure I'm thinking of Ted Williams. But that's what I'm going to go with. <laughs> um, it is Hank Aaron and Hank Greenberg. Greenberg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So you're still at 13. Question four. Chef Alice Waters, so there's there's the Alice, is mm-hmm. noted as a founder of the Edible Schoolyard Program and for her advocacy for organic and local foods. What is the name of her Berkeley, California restaurant? I don't know if this is too hard. Jeez too hard. Louise. <laughs> I have no idea. Maybe I, have, maybe I should have flipped it around and asked you for Alice Waters. Alice oh, well. Waters. Uh, I mean, if it's in Berkeley, it could be called anything. Uh, let's go with I can't even come up with a clever guess I'm gonna pass yeah I think I think this is a you know it or you don't um uh Shea Penny's is Alice Waters' okay. restaurant okay um yeah she's a she was a a really interesting figure very very early and kind of I don't know if she's if you don't know if people would call her slow foods she was like a big focus on the ingredients rather than like fancying them up with techniques. Mm. All right. I feel really bad that this has gone. This has been harder than I meant it to be. And now That's we're right. getting to a po now we're getting to a poetry question. Uh-huh. Uh, although it's not the final question. This is question five. And I tried to this is like Teach Kyle poetry, Emily's Emily's project. So alright, so there were many poets named William. And so here's the plan. This is going to be a long question, but I believe in you. I am going to read poems by four Williams, four poets named William. If you can identify two of the Williams, you get five points. Okay. If you can identify three, you get 10 points. And what the heck, let's make it 15 if, let's let's make it 15 if you get all four. Okay. I will not, but okay. (laughs) Okay. So name the poet. I'm going to start reading the poem. Feel free to stop me if you ever know. Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Gave thee life and bid thee feed by the stream and o'er the mead. Gave thee clothing of delight, softest clothing, woolly bright. Gave thee such a tender voice, making all the vales rejoice. Little lamb who made thee, dost thou know who made thee? Little lamb, I'll tell thee. Little lamb, I'll tell thee. He is called by thy name, for he calls himself a lamb. He is meek and he is mild. He became a little child. I a child and thou a lamb, we are called by his name. Little lamb, God bless thee. Little lamb, God bless thee. Do you have a guess on which William wrote this poem? Oh, jeez. Um, little lamb. I have never heard this poem before. Uh... I am going to go with William Butler Yeats. Uh, not a bad guess. This is William Blake. Oh, that was uh, the other one that I was going to guess. Uh, yeah, those are so, the two um, that I had. Uh. 
Yeah, so so the Lamb poem is, um, so Blake wrote um, Songs of Innocence and Experience, mm. um, and a lot of the poems there are paired. So the Lamb poem is the Song of Innocence that pairs with the Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright oh, Song God. of Experience. Oh, yeah, okay, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Blake was the first one that came to mind, but I was like, All right, well, I don't know. hold on to William Butler Gates because he could be coming at any time. All right, so William number two. I wandered lonely as a cloud that floats on high or veils and hills when all at once I saw a crowd, a host of golden daffodils beside the lake, beneath the trees, fluttering and dancing in the breeze. I feel like you're starting to think of it. I'm going to keep reading. Uh, but let's stop me if you ever get the if you ever get the poet. Continuous as the stars that shine and twinkle on the Milky Way, they stretched in never-ending line along the margin of a bay. Ten thousand saw I at a glance, tossing their heads in sprightly dance. The waves beside them danced, but they outdid the sparkling waves in glee. A poet could not but be gay in such a jocund company. Jocund? Jocund? I don't know. I gazed and gazed, but little thought what wealth the show to me had brought. For oft, when on my couch I lie, in vacant, in vacant or in pensive mood, they flash upon that inward eye which is the bliss of solitude, and then my heart with pleasure fills, and dances with the daffodils. You you've keyed into the the right like this is the like the daffodils should is um should be like a it's, path, it's like the a poetry cue. Path off. yeah yeah and again like i said i i do not know poetry i i'll go with yates on this one this one is not yates i'm sorry this one is william wordsworth god that's the other name i had and i was like that but i'm shoot uh... okay so my uh, next guess way... is yates because <laughs> every guess I'm... is yates all right another way of uh another way of knowing this this is this is a little niche but anybody who was into the Anastasia Krupnik series by Lois Lowry um the first in the first book she goes with her father who's an English professor while he teaches one of his college classes I think she's like 10 or 11 years old and he's doing like analysis of that poem I wandered lonely as a cloud Mm -hmm. um so it was one of the it was one of the first like great poems that I knew of just because it was in in that book that I read when I was a kid. All right. William number three. Turning and turning in the widening gyre, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second, second coming, coming is at hand. hand. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know the this. The second coming. Yeah. yeah. You got it? Well, no, because I thought it was Wordsworth. It's not Wordsworth. <laughs> That's, I know. I, I gathered that now. I mean, I mean the only other I, the only other William I can think of is Yeats, so I'm going to go with Yeats. It's Yeats! Yay! I, Yay! See, I purposely didn't go with Wordsworth, because I have... I, I guess I just have it wrong in my mind that the second coming is a Wordsworth poem. What poem am I thinking of? And it's not that, that mm-hmm. this now I'm now I'm realizing I know even less about this. Cool, but I got that one. Okay. All right. So William number four. This is the whole thing. You ready? Mm-hmm. 
All right. So much depends upon a red wheelbarrow glazed with rainwater beside the white chickens. Oh. If you get really stuck, I'm going to give you a different poem by this Williams. By this, by this William. Oh, jeez. Uh, you know, I feel like I've heard this, too. I feel like I, I know this. There's a more obvious poem by this William, and I feel like I've, I feel like I've really made this quiz too hard. So I'm going to give you the, the more obvious poem by okay. this William. Because I don't even, right. I, I'm not even coming up with another William poet. Okay. I have eaten the plums that were in the icebox, and which you were probably saving for breakfast. Forgive me. They were delicious. So sweet and so cold. Oh, damn it, we talked about this. We did. <laughs> I'm so bad at poetry. Uh, I really thought I was making it like, oh, I'm so sorry. I was like, how can I make this easy? What is his name? Oh my god. I'm, I'm blanking. I do not remember his name. All right. Uh, William Carlos Williams. William Carlos Williams. Yes. Mm-hmm. I got to like Carlos, and I was like Carlo Carlos. What I couldn't. Yeah. Oh, I'm so bad at poetry. That's right. Okay, so you're at three. Now I'm now I'm angry at William Wordsworth for no good reason. Mm-hmm. I get angry at William Carlos Williams for no no good reason. So we're even. That okay. is not. It's not an apology. <laughs> it's not I'm sorry that the you imperative. feel that way the imperative forgive me is not the same as I'm sorry right like the whole thing is titled this is just to say there's nothing apology like about it it gets mm-hmm. framed as an apology note all the time it's not an apology he's yeah. not sorry alright so you're at 13 points um, you can wager some all or none and uh, your category is potent potables <laughs> I mean, I'll bet it all, because, like... (laughs) (laughs) All right. And here is your clue. In 1759, a lease was signed for the St. James Gate Brewery. The lease extends for 9,000 years, and so for the 261 years since, and presumably the next 8,739 years to come, that Dublin location is the site of manufacture of what potent potable? I gonna guess Guinness. You are correct. Yay! Uh, Um, That was my... That Shea Pindy's question was really too hard. I'm sorry. That's alright. I mean, it's trivia. It's trivia. I I think that the Shea Pindy's question goes to my disappointment that Jeopardy's food questions never ever really touch the world of like famous chefs or restaurants. Mm Mm-hmm. Jeopardy writers, I want to see some of that stuff. Yeah. Alice Waters is a super cool figure, too. All right. So uh, you finish with 26 points. We have had worse than 26 points on this show. That is that is fair. <laughs> We've had worse from me on easier quizzes. I will tell you that much. Uh, I don't know about easier <laughs> quizzes. Different quizzes, perhaps. Yeah. All right. Well, Kyle, thank you for talking about Jeopardy with me. Oh, Thank you for talking about it with me. It's fun. Uh, Listeners, thank you for being here to listen to us talk about Jeopardy. It is a joy, as always. Uh, Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, It would help us out if you could leave a review or a rating. Um, We mentioned our Patreon. Check that out if you uh, are able to support us in that way. And even if not, you can tell your friends about us. Um, They might be home watching Jeopardy these days.
that is true. And hopefully they are, because that's a good use of your time. You can find us on Facebook at Potent Potables and on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Uh, our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com and our website is potentpod.com. We'll be back with you next week. We'll be talking about Ken Jennings' final episode um, and we'll bring you some, some deep dive and quiz stuff. Um, and until then, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker. Mm-hmm.